in my opinion, anyone who's doing anything worth doing is going to have some people who hate it. They're going to have strong reactions, positive or negative. Being extraordinary is having a relentless commitment during the unseen hours to work towards mastery of your craft and focus on the fundamentals. Being extraordinary is about doing the little things right every single day. In today's episode, I go behind the stage and behind the page with my new friend, Nicole Khalil. Nicole is an in-demand speaker, author of the incredible new book, Validation is for Parking, a respected coach, and the host of the This is Women's Work podcast. Nicole's passion for eliminating gender expectations and redefining women's work is both what keeps her up at night and what gets her up in the morning. She is a former Fortune 100 C-suite executive and has coached thousands of women in business, which has given her a unique insight into what structurally, systematically, and socially is and isn't serving women and leaders within an organization. But gentlemen, make sure you listen closely as the strategies she shares on commitment, courage, and authenticity during the unseen hours directly applies to us as well. I met Nicole through her wonderful husband, Jason, whom I met after a keynote I delivered for Northwestern Mutual in Nashville last year. Here's my conversation with the brilliant Nicole Khalil. So, Nicole, when I say the term unseen hours, what does that make you think of? Where does your head immediately go with that phrase? Yeah, I think my immediate reaction is the stuff that happens behind the scenes when nobody else is watching. Prior to when anybody actually sees the final product or the results or, or the whatever. So that's what I think of. It's, it's the stuff that happens. It's uber important to what people actually see behind the scenes. For sure. No, that's where my mind goes as well. So I knew we'd have a fun conversation. And uh, let me say congratulations on the launch of the new book. Um, and that's really what I'd love to, to focus on. I'd certainly love for you to share ideas and thoughts on your unseen hours as it relates to speaking and coaching and podcasting, but specifically the book. Would love to hear your thoughts on, on the writing process, on the strategy for launch, anything in between. Let's Let's dive in. I love it. I have lots of things to talk about because the book is predominantly unseen at this point, right? So there's a a lot to talk about there. So talk to me about the, I mean, let's take it all the way from inception. I mean, when, when did you decide to write the book and anything you want to share that gives us that, that peek behind the curtain? Yes. So I will say that probably the most important unseen hours for me are what happens before I actually start doing the unseen things. And and what I mean by that is the thoughts, the fears, the doubts, the noise, all the stuff that happens in my own mind. And the book is a perfect example of this. I have wanted to write a book for as long as I can remember. It's like been a bucket list thing for since I was a teenager. I'm an avid reader. As I know, are you? I typically read 60 plus books a year. And so I knew I wanted to do it, but I did what I think a lot of us do is I did the, I wanted to feel ready. I wanted to know that it was the right thing to do. I wanted to figure out exactly how I was going to do it A to Z. You're so wise. What I found to be the most important part of the unseen hours was just getting into action without having the answers, without feeling ready, without knowing how it was going to look or how it was going to work. It was the dealing with the stuff that was going on inside my own mind 
before the actual writing and the editing and the publishing and, and all the stuff that I think we think about when we write a book. So what do you think actually pushed you over the edge? What, what took it from something you've been literally thinking about since your teenage years to saying, you know what, even if I don't feel ready, don't feel prepared and don't know that now is the right time, I'm still going to do it anyway. Yeah. So the real answer is I started taking my own advice and stopped uh, buying into my own crap. <laughs> right. So like I was saying the most ridiculous things, like I have so much respect for books and authors. I want to like, I don't even know what that means anymore. I just know it was my excuse for not getting into action. And the book is about confidence and what it takes to build it. And the number one confidence builder is action. We don't think or hope or fingers and toes cross our way into confidence. Action builds confidence. That is the number one confidence builder. I often say, if you take nothing away from our time together today, other than this, understand that action builds confidence. We act our way into confidence. And so, you know, as happens so often when you tell other people or when you um, lead people, you start taking your own advice. And I, I just began to realize that it was one foot in front of the other, the way I've done everything in my life. It was small risks leading to big rewards. And, and so, yeah, it was to stop buying into my own crap that I was making up and, and to start putting that one foot in front of the other. So you needed to act your way into having confidence to write a book about confidence. Ironic, right? <laughs> no, I mean, but, perfect. But, but there's so much truth to that. And, and I tell folks all the time, I mean, I, I write the books that I need to be reading myself. And, you know, even though I, I came out with a book on stress, stagnation and burnout, that's not because I've mastered those things. It's because I still struggle with those things. And I actually find it both, you know, empowering and liberating and partially therapeutic to write about the stuff that I need to get better at. So no, I think the fact that you, you're you a practitioner and you live what it is that you teach makes you even better at it. Yeah, and I'm from talking to people myself and, and doing interviews and things like that, I begin to realize that so many of us, our purpose stems from our pain, right? What is giving us the most grief or causing the most pain or has created the most problems in our life end up often becoming our life's work. And so, yeah, for me, it was, um, I, I looked like I was confident, but internally had none of it. I, I, I didn't even know what confidence was anymore. And so digging into that, you know, figuring some things out and then applying it day after day, still today, I think, stress management and confidence are two things that you never are done with, right? Like you never arrive and you're like, whoo, glad I did that, right? It, it, it's just an ongoing journey always, so. Well, and so is that what made you decide this to be the, the topic and the theme of the book? I mean, you're you're multifaceted and multi-talented and I know you, you've got a breadth of knowledge in a variety of different areas. What made you actually lean into the vulnerability of writing about something that that you just acknowledge is something that we all struggle with regularly? Yeah, um, a little bit of combination of uh, action and failure, which are two confidence builders. So I started getting into action towards writing a book, but I thought I was writing a different book. Originally, I was going to be writing a book on debunking um, some of the more masculine-oriented approaches to business. Now, I want to be very clear. I advocate a lot for women in the work that I do, but never at the expense of men. 
So um, I am very pro men. <laughs> um, and I think that there is a great need for both the masculine and the feminine in, in business and, and work. Now, as of last year, 92% of business books are written by men. And so what I thought was missing was a lot of the feminine uh, strengths and attributes, not just for women, but for men too, in, in corporate cultures and in business. And so originally I wanted to write a book to emphasize how the feminine really um, can be additive and, and, and instrumental in creating professional success. So that was the book that I started writing, got into action and, and was struggling and, and it was feeling really hard and, and, and like some roadblocks and, and had these little mini failures and mistakes. And in that I, I learned and it like pushed me in the right direction. And I finally got to a point where I was like, when I speak, I speak on confidence 80% of the time when I'm standing on a stage. That's what I'm talking about. Understand that action builds confidence. You can't hope your way into it. You can't think your way. You can't research your way. You only act your way into confidence. I love the message. The book's pretty much already written, right? You know, from what I talk about all the time. And clearly there's an audience and an interest or else I, I wouldn't be doing it and speaking. And so I, I kind of went the route of, this is my first book. I might as well start with something that seems not easy, but like laid out. It, 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 it didn't seem like there was so much resistance. And, and it, 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 it was like, yeah, I can always write a second book. Yeah, action and failure is what got me here. But both of those are confidence builders. Uh, and, and so again, it goes back to <laughs> taking my own advice. Absolutely. No, I think that's brilliant. And once you started to make that shift, so you, you literally started writing a different book and over that process realized, I actually want to start taking a couple of right turns and go down a different direction. Share a little bit about your, your actual writing process. I mean, are, are you the type of person that would block off an hour every morning to, to put fingers to keyboard? Share anything and everything on how you literally go from sharing this message on stage to then putting it on page. The real transparent answer is I hired a writing partner. Um, I knew from the get-go, I'd never done this before. I, I was going to overthink the process. I was going to get stuck on things and I didn't want to do that. And so it was, you know, really like hiring a, a coach, having somebody who has experience, um, has know-how, has suggestions and advice and was going to keep me on track. That accountability piece was important to me too. Because, you know, like so many of us, I could talk my way out of a lot of things. But if I had somebody that I needed to get pages to by a certain date because we had a call to review them, then I was going to do it. So uh, hiring a writing partner was really instrumental and important for me um, in, this, in this whole process. I also was very clear I didn't want a ghostwriter. I wanted these to be my words, my message, and my tone. And, and so I didn't want to delegate the writing off to somebody else. So um, I did do a little bit of research and talk to some authors to figure out what might be the right approach for me. But, but for me, it was ha having that writing partner. I worked in chunks. Um, I'm a, more of a sprinter than I am a marathoner in, in, in life. And so I would block out four hours on one day and just hammer it out. 
And then I have, I mean, it's literally sitting right here. I have a notebook that I just had with me at all times. And whenever an idea pops in my head, which is usually late at night or like just getting out of the shower, I just write a bunch of stuff down. And then the next time I had a good chunk of time on my calendar, I just hammer it out. I think it's brilliant. I knew we'd have such a fun conversation because we've traveled very similar paths. I mean, I John Sternfield was my co-author, my co-writer, and same thing. I very much viewed him as the expert coach. I mean, he's been a writer for, you know, decades and this was something new to me. Uh, he also really enjoys the research part, which I'm more of kind of the visionary, the storyteller, the content guy. He's kind of the cross the T's dot the I's. So it, it worked out really well. So I, I love that you kind of created that, that partnership. Talk to me about kind of the, the timeline. So how far into writing the, the previous book until you realize we're going to go in a different direction? And then how long did it actually take to pen the book that we're all going to have the pleasure of reading? I was in like chapter outlines and I, I started writing one of the chapters for the original idea, but how difficult it was to get all of the chapter outlines in the original book was really the big message that I wasn't the right writing the right book at the right time. I still... Love the idea of that book. And also because it just it kept going back to confidence, even, even in that work. The other thing, again, to be fully transparent is the original idea was going to require so much more research and writing and, and reviewing and, and interviewing and all that than the, the confidence book. That one was much easier because I'd already done a lot of the research. I already had a lot of the statistics and all of that. And, and so it was really in that outline, writing that first chapter that I realized it was better to go the other way. How long does it take to write a book? Because I know every author is different. You, you take somebody like uh, a Malcolm Gladwell, he sometimes takes four, five, six years to do Malcolm Gladwell level research to write a book. Whereas right. for me, it's closer to about 12, 14 months. Yeah. So I'm more in your time frame. <laughs> uh, it was May to March, the actual writing process. So uh, a little less than a year when I'm thinking about the calls with my writing partner and the actual typing and, and all that. It's been really interesting. I don't know if this is true for you too. Some of the parts that I thought would be really hard were actually really easy. Writing falls in that category. Once I had the chapter outlines, I knew what I wanted to say. And so it was just like, you know, easy. I didn't anticipate the editing process to be nearly as hard as it is. And so that was grueling and that took, I don't know, so many months. Um, so from first, you know, first writing of the now book to release will probably be 16 months. Yeah, that sounds about right. And then of course, that's only a part of what you need to do is the actual creating of the best book that you're capable of. Then you hand the baton off and you've got to market, promote, and try to get it in front of as many people that you believe it will help. And that's that's a whole different beast. So, so talk yeah. to me a little bit about uh, some of your, your launch strategy and so forth. My least favorite part of the process being a diehard introvert and a homebody is <laughs> the marketing and promotion. Like I, I still, to this day, knowing that this is absolutely not true, still have this voice in my head that's like, well, if you write a really good book, it'll market itself. And it's like, okay, that's crap. I know it really had to approach this from a strategic and logical standpoint. And I really had to be clear about what's my goal. For me, my intended goal is to impact as many readers as humanly possible. 
And my book is written by a woman with women in mind. I hope people of all genders read it and get a ton out of it. But like I, I visualize the women that I want reading it and what decisions they'll make differently and how they'll trust themselves more. And the So that, that was really important to me as I approached the strategy of marketing, because the idea of marketing on its own does not really excite me that much. Um, as far as strategy is concerned, um, yes, podcasts I've heard from every author under the sun that uh, getting on people's podcasts and talking about the book is probably one of the biggest game changers. I have like a VIP launch group. Um, I'm sure you did this too. Uh, people who are pre-reading, who are giving feedback, who are, are telling family and friends about it. We are doing a launch party. Uh, I do have a few, like a little mini book tour, a few bookstores. Uh, I happen to live in the town uh, that has the oldest independent bookstore in the country, Andover, Massachusetts, which is, again, as an avid reader, just such a cool thing. So uh, we are doing our first launch book signing there. Uh, so that has like a little added personal meaning for me. Outside of that, just sort of the normal social media. Oh, um, this might be of interest. I have a love-hate relationship with social media. <laughs> I understand the extreme benefits of it. And I also don't, based on all the things I know about confidence, don't really think that's the healthiest and best environment for building your own confidence. It's so easy to fall in the comparison trap and the judgment trap. Okay, well, that's smart. Having said that, I didn't want to look back and feel like I didn't do everything I could. I didn't want to feel like I hadn't invested in all of the best places. So I actually hired a social media team, paying them nine grand a month. Like this is no small investment. It's probably my biggest single business expense right now, other than paying myself. It felt like it's not my area of expertise. I don't love it. The same approach as to writing the book. Let me hire somebody who knows what they're doing, who's done all the research, who knows the trend, who will tell me what to do. But at the same time, I wanted to be able to write my own copy and have it be you know, representative of me and, and, and all of that. So that's another big risk or investment, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, as far as strategy is concerned. Sure. But I love that approach. I mean, I, I love the fact that, that you know what your lane is and where your strengths are and that you're willing to get outside help for the areas that aren't. And, and we have a very similar approach. You know, it's a two pronged approach. Step one is write the best book that you're capable of at that time. Uh, yep. Check. And then two is do everything in your power to get in front of the people that you believe it will help and benefit. And uh, yeah. that 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 part's pretty evergreen. You know, once the book is done, it's kind of done. I mean, there's two or three things that I, I made a claim of in, in Raise Your Game, which is now almost four years old. That certainly didn't turn out to, to pan out the way that I had thought four years later but it's stuck in print. I mean, that's part of what takes courage to write a book, but the marketing and promotion is evergreen. And, and that's the switch I've had to make is I don't look at it as self-promotion. I look at it as I believe in this work and I believe it will help you. So I'm actually doing you a favor by letting you know that it's out there. And, and maybe that's just my way of convincing myself to do it, but that's how I've had to approach it. No, that's, you just said ex much better than I did, but that's exactly been my approach is thinking about the impact and the reader helps me to do this thing that I don't feel comfortable with, 
which feels like self-promotion, but it's really not, right? And, and, and you said that wonderfully. Let me add just two things. I don't know if they are going to work yet or not. It's yet to be seen, but um, yeah. I have been, as a strategy, focusing a lot on book clubs. So doing, a, if, you know, if you read this as part of your book club, I'll come on 30 minutes, do a little Q&A type thing. Uh, and then, of course, a, as a speaker, um, reaching out to a lot of previous clients, uh, you know, people I've worked with, it's been a long time and just, Hey, would love to do a presentation or, or, or do a speaking engagement. And it's, I mean, I'm sure, I don't know if you did this, but I, I've talked to other authors and it's sort of like the best time to get a speaker at a reduced fee or to get somebody on your podcast is when they're about to launch a book. I just had Jenna Kutcher on my podcast, which was the absolute coup but it was because she is launching a book. So <laughs> you're out there and you want somebody to do something for your time. And when they're launching a book, they'll do just about anything, right? Yes. That's awesome. Talk to me about the title. Cause I, I absolutely love the title and where that came, where that came from, like what inspired that and when along the process did you actually come up with it? Cause a lot of people don't realize that it's not always as formulaic and as sequential as I decide to write a book. Here is the title. Here are the 15 chapters, and now let me fill it all out. Sometimes those things are all done in very different orders. Yeah. So the title came many, many months after the writing had started. So it was not at all in sequential order. In fact, um, I was having a really hard time with the title, and my publisher connected me with somebody whose job it is literally to help authors come up with titles. Like that is the coolest job, but not one I could do because I was all over the place. I, I have a Google doc of like, I don't know, 400 potential titles that we were working on at some point. It was at the end of the fourth hour in these brainstorming sessions that we would have, I flippantly threw out validation is for parking. And she was like, wait, say that again. And I'm like, validation is for parking. And she's like, I love it. That's the title. And I'm like, wait, time out. <laughs> Shouldn't we do another call and like talk about it? And she's like, no, that's it. That's the, and it was, uh, you know, a lot of work on her part, getting to the point where that just sort of popped out of my mouth. And, and I was pleased that she reacted so strongly and, and, because, you know, I always thought the title was supposed to explain what the book was about. And she had told me, she said, the title is supposed to say, hey, you. And then the subtitle says, yes, I'm talking to you. The title being what grabs people's attention. And, and I like, I think my title does that. It at least makes people think. Every time I say the title, people take like a half second and think about it, and then they laugh. And then the subtitle for my book is How Women Can Beat the Confidence Con. And so that, to me, tells a little bit about who I had in mind when I wrote the book and, and what it's actually about. Oh, love that. And I think you, I think you nailed it with that because uh, it, it makes the person feel somewhat fascinated and curious, like validation is for parking. Okay, tell me more. Uh, and then even your subtitle, I think, does a brilliant job of that because now my question is, so what is the confidence con? Like, that's a really cool kind of, uh, you know, alliteration play on words. So uh, unpack that a little bit. What's, uh, I guess, the overarching theme or premise of the confidence con? Yeah. So the confidence con is really closely tied to what you're talking about with the unseen hours. We have sort of be 
begun to believe or, or been tricked into believing that confidence is something that comes as a result of something. So it typically looks like this. If X happens, X can be promotion, certain level of income, certain weight or BMI. It could be perfectly behaved children. It could be a certain house or partner of your dreams. We sort of have begun to believe that if X happens, then I'll feel confident. And it's this weird game of where is Waldo as if somebody is out there running around with your confidence or something is holding on to it for you. You want success? Build your confidence. You want better relationships? Grow your confidence. The decisions you make, risks you take, and dreams you chase are all directly tied to it. Confidence is not an external thing. It's an internal thing. And it happens mostly in the unseen hours. We think when we see, when we have something that people can see, when we have a result or an achievement, that that will trigger confidence. And it's really the opposite. It's the things that we do within our own minds, in our own space, with our own decisions that ultimately lead to confidence. So the confidence con is that it's based on an achievement or a result or, or, or something like that. So I, I want to tie that to something you said earlier about uh, the comparison trap or playing the comparison game, which, you know, I know now as an author is very easy to fall into that trap, you know, comparing how my book's doing versus other authors. And it doesn't take long to compare yourself to someone that will make you feel about this big uh, yeah. when you see the number of books they sell. So to step outside of that and for you to continue to be confident, how, what will be your metric on whether or not this book is a success? And I'm saying success, very loaded in air quotes. Um, what, what will determine whether or not you consider your book a success? Luckily, my publisher had asked me that early on, so I've had some real time to think about it. For me, it's um, a, a couple things. Number one, that it impacts the reader. And the best way to measure that is reviews. I wish there was some other way to measure it, but reviews is, is certainly one of them. And I want to be really clear. I don't want 100% five-star reviews. Right. I would love to get some one stars and, and everything in between, because in my opinion, anyone who's doing anything worth doing is going to have some people who hate it. They're going to have strong reactions, positive or negative. And so, yes, I want a lot of five-star reviews. That will help me know that I'm making great impact. But I also want some of the not-so-good ones. I want to piss some people off. I want to make some people uncomfortable. To me, that means that I will have been bold enough, courageous enough, um, and strong enough in the writing of this book that people have that that strong of a reaction. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing will be the amount of people who, who read it, uh, who have the ability to be impacted by it. Um, so of course, if it's a great book, then people will tell their friends and more people will buy it, more people will read it. Um, I also uh, have some partnerships going with charitable organizations that are focused on women's issues that I'm partnering with to get the books in and, and, and so it, it's a measure of book sales, but I want to be really clear of books that are out there in people's hands. And then finally, there is a business purpose for me. Uh, the 
writing of the book is a passion project, um, a bucket list thing, but it, I wanted to tie it into a business result. And for me, it's a bit of a, a calling card for speaking. And so if the book is doing well, I would anticipate more better speaking opportunities. And of course I have metrics around that and goals um, that I want to achieve. So it's a little bit of all of the above, but that, that's what I'm focused on. That's what success will look like for me. And I want to be very clear too. I have no control who publishes a book the same week I do. So whether it does better or worse or, you know, all of that, that's, that's out of my control. I wrote the best book I could. I loved it at this time, right? Um, and I'm going to do everything that's in my power to promote it in the way that I want to the people I want to. Uh, and then outside of that, I have those more controllable metrics that I'm focused on. I just love that you have so much clarity on what winning looks like and what success looks like to you. I love the fact that you brought up that you actually welcome some dissenters and some people that might not love your work as much as, as one would typically hope, but that's okay. That when you have the courage to put something out in the world, it's not going to be for everyone and it shouldn't be for everyone. And um, who knows? And some of those things, you you may get some feedback that can help you moving forward. And some of them, you can just say, yes, that's all right. I'm doing, I'm doing good work. If not everyone loves what I do. I think that takes tremendous courage. Uh, I remember when I, I read my first one-star review on Raise Your Game, I, I had a little bit of a pity party that night. I was a little upset. And then the next day I woke up and thankfully had a, an attitude very much like you have. I, I wish I would have had oh. it, there, but just said, yeah, it's, it wasn't for him and that's okay. Yeah. Trust me. I will have my moment, right? Like I'm not going <laughs> to, I say this and I'm building myself up for it, but I'm sure I'm going to have a, a few moments where, you know, I get caught in that judgment or comparison, or I get um, stuck in overthinking or throw myself a little pity party. I just hope that I get myself out of it very quickly. I really, in my mind, the difference between exceptional people, the uber successful and everyone else is how quickly they get back into action after the tough moments. I like it a lot. We all have the tough moments. We all suck at something or fail or make a mistake. It's how quickly we pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off and get into action towards what matters most that I think distinguishes and separates the best of the best from everyone else. And I'll add to you, I have literally behind me uh, the quote, you will be too much for some people. Those aren't your people. And that's my reminder to live authentically, to live loud, to be brave, to be seen, to be bold, and then let the chips fall where they may, because I am not meant for everyone. Well, I mean, you've dropped so much gold so far, but I hope everyone rewinds the last two minutes and listens to that again, because that was brilliantly said, perfectly articulated. Uh, I don't want to be the guy that while you're holding a newborn asks you if you're going to have another child, but I guess I'll be <laughs> I do that. And I'm like, why am I doing this? I know I shouldn't. Anyway, I, I, I know we're, we're really early in the process, but do you foresee yourself writing another book? Have you enjoyed the unseen hours of what it takes to launch a book? And do you see yourself doing another, if not several more? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do see myself writing another book and it may be the one that I originally, it may be something else. I don't know when, and I certainly don't know how. There's so much going to be learned from this experience that I would anticipate I do some things the same and some things very differently the second time around. 
Uh, but yeah, that is, that is on the horizon. Um, and, and here's the thing that I think is important, regardless of how this book does. I just know that this is something I want to do. I want to write another book. I have another story to tell. I have another message that gets to get out. And it's not dependent on the results, good, bad, or indifferent of this book. Because I see this book as either a massive success or a massive learning opportunity. Those are the only two options. Oh, I think that's a brilliant way to look at it. And and you also mentioned something earlier. So much of this is outside of our control. I mean, I, I know in my experience, um, and I say this in full transparency, Sustain Your Game, my second book, isn't selling quite as well as, as I had hoped and honestly isn't even selling as well as the first book. And, and I actually think the second book is a better book. I mean, I, I have more life experience and more writing experience and, and learned a lot from the first one. So there's there's a lot of things that are just beyond our control, but I still sleep fine at night knowing that I've done those two things and I'm learning to let everything else go. And like you said as well, some days I'm pretty good at that. Other days I realize I've got a lot of work left to do. Well, so first, Alan, I want to appreciate your vulnerability and transparency in sharing that. I mean, so many people wouldn't. We all, you know, are so focused, again, back to the confidence con and how things look, right? And so sometimes it's hard to say it's not going as expected or, you know, and, and so I appreciate you you saying that. And if you're listening, let's all <laughs> buy a few copies and send a few <laughs> copies to friends and, and family um, because I know you do great work. And isn't it interesting how sometimes the things you're most proud of aren't things that catch on the fastest or that have the greatest results. And then there's some things that I've done that are almost by accident that people keep talking about or, or think is exceptional. Like I think of some of my podcast episodes, some of the ones that I put my heart and soul and everything into were like, eh. And then there's some that are like, did as an afterthought that are the most listened to you. And, the mo- and I'm like, okay, my job, put my best work out there, put one foot in front of the other, keep learning, keep growing. And, and the rest, I don't really have much to say about that. For sure. Well, you know, the, the lesson I've learned, and I've even started discussing this with my publisher, uh, and this is why I was so fascinated by the brilliance of your title. In all honesty, with hindsight being 2020, I think I forced the title of sustain your game too hard to be the follow-up to raise your game. And that sustain is not a very sexy word. It's not the word that draws people in. Like I, I think the, the subtitle in the context of stress stagnation and burnout is important. And the people that have read it, I've gotten tremendous feedback. So I think it's that, that initial entry point that I tried too hard to be formulaic and create a series and that might have been to my detriment. Had I taken a page out of your book and come up with a really creative, sexy, fun title that maybe had the word stress or burnout in it, who knows, maybe it'd be a different yeah. response. But but as you said so perfectly, it's just a learning experience. I mean, this is, this is number two of many books that I plan on writing. And I'll take this information and you know use that and apply it moving forward. So I, I'm not losing an ounce of sleep over it. It, this is the playground at which we've decided to play. And this is the laboratory at which we will experiment. And some things will go really well. Other things won't go as well as we'd hoped. And that's okay. You learn from them. Well, and I think we have an opportunity as a people, as humans, to start making sustaining consistency, predictability, sexy. I mean, 
come on. Like I get the sexy title. I get the drawing people in, but you know, what's sexy is knowing what to expect, knowing somebody is going to deliver creating consistency, not riding the roller coaster. I, I, I feel like we have gotten so, you know, if it doesn't catch my attention in three seconds or less, I'm not interested. And, and we're missing out on such good and important information by doing that. So I, I, I hear what you're saying about a learning opportunity. I also still think people should buy your book. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that so much. So I know we've focused on, on your book, but that's only one facet of, of who it is that you are and what it is that you offer. Let's talk a little bit about the unseen hours as both a keynote speaker and as a podcast host and, and what goes on before you take the stage or before the mics go hot. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, most of the work happens behind the scenes. You know, you stand in front of an audience for 45 minutes or an hour. That's like the smallest percentage of the work that goes in. Um, Figuring out a message worth sharing, figuring out how to uh, um, deliver it in a way that draws people in. And for me, what was really, has always been really important is to have people walk away with takeaways and and things they can immediately test out and implement in their lives. I didn't ever want to be a motivational speaker, this idea of like, everybody feels all riled up and happy and they walk out and then they're like, 24 hours later, they're like, now what? Now what do I do? You smart. I appreciate that. Having said that, I really, again, as a diehard introvert, had to work on the skill of speaking and creating energy and, and, and the right type of energy and being authentic in that. So like for me, being uber bubbly or hypey or, or like yelling at people, that's not really my, my deal. I had to figure out my way. So that, of course, included coaches and um, courses and, and trial and error. Sometimes people would say, you know, how can you speak in front of an audience of 12,000 people? Like, well, I didn't start with 12,000 people. I started with an audience of three and I was nervous as all get out, right? You know, just sort of uh, uh, evolved and grew. Um, as far as prep is concerned, I, I, I'm sure you do too. I have a routine, right? Like I, I, I wake up early, I um, get my workout in and, and I'm not a, a diehard workout advocate. Like, I do it to maintain health and so I don't die. I really don't enjoy it. But for me, I, I, the working out the morning I'm speaking, even if it's short, is just about releasing the endorphins and starting my day off feeling proud of myself because I don't enjoy working out, but I always feel proud of myself when I do it because I've kept a commitment to myself and I've done something good for my body and for my mind. And so that is the reason for that. Um, I have a playlist that I have all these songs and I just crank those as loud as I can get away with in my hotel room. (laughs) And and of course, you know, the routine of getting ready and all of that. And then um, I always practice the first three minutes of my talk 10 times before I go speak. It's just a, a rule of thumb because for me, the getting started is so important. For me, that minimizes the nerves. After that, I don't have an entire presentation memorized ever. I always have the first five minutes memorized. And I always run through those first three minutes to make sure I'm starting out the best that I can. And then I let the energy, the 
the trust that I know what I'm talking about and that I'm going to say the right things for the people that I'm going to read the room, that I'm going to pay attention to what people need. And of course, take the advice of the clients or the, the person setting up the event of, as far as what their people need to hear, what's on people's minds, um, that type of thing. So making the appropriate tweaks. And then of course, when I'm done speaking in the unseen hours, I right away separate myself and I write down what I was most proud of, what I would like to do differently and what I learned. Um, and that's my, cause there's, I mean, I've had maybe one speaking engagement where I was like, whoa, I crushed that one. Like that was next level out of body experience. But for the most part, there's always something I could do a little bit better or there's something that I really liked the way I did that time. And I don't want to forget about it. And so I, I have those notes and I make tweaks and adjustments based on that. So I could keep going, but that gives you a sense of, of the work that I do. And then podcast prep, I actually like, um, because it's very, uh, I take about an hour and a half to prep each podcast where somebody's a guest online and think about the questions. And I typically have, you know, a handful written down, but nine times out of 10, I ask about half the questions I prepared and I let the conversation take it wherever it wants to go and, um, throw out the rest of the questions. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I, I can't, it's hard for me to fathom how much alignment we have. I mean, your, your pre-speaking process and your pre-podcasting po process is incredibly similar to mine. That's, and, and I also ascribe as being a, a fellow introvert, um, you know, uh, when I'm done and I get off stage, uh, no matter how the engagement went, I can't wait to get back to my hotel room and have some quiet, some stillness, usually some Uber eats. Like I don't even want to see another human being. Totally. Till the next day when I fly home. What, what I always tell folks is introversion has nothing to do with being antisocial or being shy. It's all about where you get your energy. I mean, I, I love people and I love being around people and I love serving people, but it drains me unbelievably. And when I'm done that, I mean, I am done. It is, it is time for me to shut down. So I, I like knowing we're very similar in that regard. I'm so glad that you said that because I do think that's a common misconception. I love people. I actually think I love people so much that that contributes to my introversion because when I'm in front of people, I want to give fully. Like it is all out there. There is literally nothing left in the tank when I'm done, which is, I, I know for extroverts, they're like, you know, that gives me energy. And I'm like, that's amazing for me. I need to go and... <laughs> I don't know if you have this, but sometimes after a speaking engagement, they'll say, you know, can you meet with the team for dinner or whatever? And I love doing it, but I'm like, oh, okay, I need to like gear up a little extra for that. Oh, so. for sure. Well, you know, what's funny is I, it's still my preference to do any type of gathering after I speak as opposed to before I speak. And, you know, very understandably, I'm not on a, a level of fame most people have no idea who I am when I'm going to speak. So I usually, you know, at like a, a pre-event meetup, I'm just kind of standing in the corner, just observing. And then if anyone does mosey over to talk to the shy kid, you know, well, they'll say, who are you? Well, I'm the keynote speaker. Oh, what are you going to talk about is my least favorite question. I understand why they ask it. And then I always just wink and smile and say, well, you'll see tomorrow morning because I don't want to give my talk twice, but I also, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't want to sound like an a-hole but yeah, so I, I prefer doing it after when there's some context, because then people, 
they want to come up and share their story. They want to tell you about an experience they had. They want, and, and then it's a little easier for me to engage. Sometimes the pre-event stuff can be a little painful for me. So, I mean, I feel like a little light bulb just went off for me because I have had that experience so many times, the pre-events and I'm just sort of awkward. I thought it was a me thing. I thought it was because I'm more introverted and because I like, I'm one of those people who I, I am so bad at small talk. Like I just, and so I thought that was a me thing, but I mean, the fact that you just said that now, I, <laughs> I feel like I, I have the, that light, like light bulb moment where I'm like, okay, now I'm really going to encourage people for the, after the talk, I can suck up the energy, the awkwardness the day before is a little tough. For sure. Well, anything else you want to share just under the overarching umbrella of Unseen Hours? This this has been really fun. This has been um, fascinating for me. I, I just love this concept that a lot of people only know you and I from seeing us on stage, reading our books, and seeing what we post on Instagram. And they don't realize that's a very small window into the totality of everything that we have going on. And, and I just want to start bringing to light what people do during the unseen hours. I mean, the, yeah. the average basketball player flips on ESPN and sees highlights of Stephen Curry and LeBron James and is enamored, but they don't see the thousands and thousands and thousands of hours those guys have put in, in the weight room, in the film room and on the court that allows them to do that. And that's what really the connection I want people to make is what you do during the unseen hours dictates what you do once the light come, comes on. Yeah. So I would add for me in the unseen hours is being a mom and being a spouse uh, very much contributes to uh, the amount of hours I have to, and, and 2020 was a really tough year for me, not just because of COVID and being home and, and, and for all the reasons it was really tough for everybody. We all had our, our, our things, right? But I had made the, the decision to walk away from my two biggest contracts in 2019. Ooh. They totaled over a half a million between the two because I wanted, they were becoming my excuse for not doing what I wanted to be doing, launching the podcast, speaking, because they took up so much of my time. And I had saved a bunch of that money to give myself a one to two year transition to build the speaking side and start the podcast. So I did everything smart. I put in your quotes and strategically, but I couldn't have anticipated a pandemic. And so when that hit, I just like was pivoting, pivoting, pivoting. And, and what I became, began to realize, and I'll tie this back to the unseen hours, is I was letting fear and nervousness run the show. And I was really trying to figure out how do I make money? How do I create success? Because what I was trying to do is replicate the money that I was making before, because I had defined that as my metric of success. Mm -hmm. And so what became really important for me is to define what my priorities were and basically to say no that, to everything that wasn't that. I was so scattered for so long and I was trying, so I launched an online course. I was working with this client. I was doing this work that I've never done before. Um, so when I think of the unseen hours, first, I only work about 30 hours a week. Now, of course, if I travel for speaking, um, you know, that might be, and I also, I often say, you know, I won't advocate for women at the expense of my daughter. So I, there's only so many on-site engagements that I'll do in a month or in a quarter. Um, so all of that to say, 
part of the unseen hours for me was getting very clear on what my priorities are. For, for me, it's my health, mental, emotional, and physical, my family, my husband and daughter, and the relationships and communication and love we have for each other, and my business. So those are my three priorities. If it's not connected with those, then it's a no. And then even in my business, I have a top three. It's speaking, writing the book, and coaching. If it's not in line with those top three, it's a no, at least a no for now. And so I'm getting clearer and clearer about, you know, you think about the people you mentioned. I've never heard of Serena Williams picking up volleyball, right? She's really clear about her strength and her space and where she's supposed to be. And, and she says no to everything that isn't that. I, I think in a world where we have access to so much and there's so much we can be doing, just because we can do it doesn't mean we should. Okay, well, that's smart. And so, yes, there's all the practice, all the work, all the behind the scenes, all the fear, all the doubt, all the things that we don't see. But when I think of the unseen hours for me, probably the biggest game changer has been being very clear about what I'm working toward and what I am not working toward and just spending all of my energy in that sort of narrow space. Is that, am I making any sense? Oh, you're more than making sense. You're really hitting a nerve there in a great way. I mean, I, I think one, that's the perfect bow tie to kind of sum up this conversation. I think that's a brilliant way to end it. Uh, for me personally, that's something I've really tried to make improvements in the last couple of years of my life because I admittedly for the first four decades was a, a self-diagnosed people pleaser. And that, that came from a very deep insecurity of wanting to feel worthy, wanting to feel liked and feeling like I need to say yes to everyone so that they'll like me. And I, I realized that doing that, I was undermining what gave me true fulfillment and I was undermining my priorities. And, and I think you just outlined your priorities brilliantly. Um, I'm trying to think, I think it was David Allen, who said, if you have more than three priorities, then you don't have any. Um, oh, so, God, I don't know, but I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's those things that if, if you say, well, here's my list of 15 priorities, it's like, all right, well, then you don't really know what the word means. Uh, I love that you broke it down into those three. And, and now I'm much better about saying no, saying it with, with professionalism, with tact, with courtesy, with empathy, but just, you know, that is not an alignment with where I'm trying to go, who I'm trying to become. So I'll politely decline. And yeah. uh, it's been a game. I'm going to add to, I say no to your benefit, right? So if somebody reaches out for some, I say, listen, that's not aligned with my priorities right now. And it wouldn't be to your benefit if I said yes, because I'd be distracted. I'd be doing something that isn't in my lane or isn't in my sweet spot or whatever, whatever the case may be. I, I think our no's help ev everybody. And, and I'm, I, I can agree, I can relate completely. I, I would say there's an element of people pleasing, but I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I thought, <laughs> I, thought I had to do it all, be it all, have it all, and look good while doing it. I thought that's what it meant to be successful. And so it's been a very long and ongoing learning process to narrow and narrow and narrow and, and say no and communicate healthy boundaries in a way that works for everybody. Yeah, well, perfectionism is kind of the, the sister of the people pleasing, because if you, your deep seated belief is that I'm unworthy and that I'm not enough, 
Well, if I'm perfect, then I guess I'll get closer to being enough and people will like me, people will love me. Um, So yeah, those two things can be slippery slopes. If you you start with the construct that I am enough, I am worthy and I'm not broken, I've got plenty of things to work on, but I'm not broken, then you can start to move to a position that's that's much more powerful. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. I did not foresee that coming out during this conversation, but boy, you, you shed some amazing light on the unseen hours and the work that that all of us can do because this stuff applies to folks that aren't keynote speakers aren't authors and don't have podcasts it's the same principles just apply to whatever area of life that you're trying to excel yeah here's the only thing i know for sure i am here and that is not an accident like there is never going to be another me in the future there has never been another me in history i am here for such a time as this and that is by design on purpose, which means I have inherent worth. I have in- inherent value. I am here. And so are you. So all of those things are true for you too. And, and it took me a long time to figure that out because it was about proving myself. But I, I, I tell myself that often. I am here. It's not an accident. So if I'm here for a reason, if I'm here on purpose, then Whatever I'm dealing with, whatever I'm facing, whatever is going on is part of it. And so, yeah, nothing to prove, nobody to please, but myself, (laughs) the people I love. And uh, yeah, I mean, that is really what stemmed the whole book. So uh, I I know you're trying to wrap this up, but Alan, thank you so much. This has been such a good conversation. And you're right, we, there is so much overlap. So it's so much fun to talk to somebody in the same space, dealing with the same things. And I have learned a ton from watching you and your book journey. I've frankly stolen a lot of your ideas and I'm applying them to my book. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Well, I stole them from somewhere else. I'm just paying them forward. So uh, I am so excited to read your book and so excited to share it and promote it with everyone that I can. So this, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for investing your time with us. I hope we helped you raise your game and provided useful insight on how you can maximize the unseen hours. If you found this episode helpful, would you be open-minded to supporting the show? Would you be kind enough to share it with a friend or colleague? Would you take 30 seconds and leave us a rating and review? Those two things help support the show's mission and message more than you realize. And don't ever forget, a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. If I can ever be of service to you or your organization, please visit allensteinjr.com or strongerteam.com for a variety of speaking and coaching resources.